0: Learn more at Invesco.com slash QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc.
1: There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss.
0: Hello, and welcome back to The Prospect Interview the podcast where we meet some of the brightest minds of today and talk about the ideas that matter in politics, arts and society. My name's Samir Rahim and I'm delighted this week to be talking to the writer Eliane Glazer about what she calls progressive elitism. Though expertise has now fallen out of favour, it seems, among both the right and the left, Eliane agrees that this supposedly populist uprising... Has in fact made it more difficult to criticize the real elites. We need to restore our belief in standards, excellence and merit, she argues, and by doing so, we may even repair democracy itself. Eliane Glazer, thanks so much for joining us on the Prospect interview.
1: Lovely.
0: Um, So in your new book on uh, elitism, a progressive defence, so elitism, it's a term that means different things to different people, uh, doesn't it? So, you know, there's a right-wing interpretation of it versus a left-wing interpretation of it. Um, How do you define it?
1: Yeah, so I would like to draw a distinction between two meanings of the word elite that I think have become damagingly muddled. So on the one hand, there's the financial elites, Um, And on the other hand, there's cultural and educational high standards. So the excellent, the challenging, the difficult professional expertise, rigorous journalism, and also political institutions and the rule of law. So I think we should be worrying about the first meaning of the term elitism. And by that, I'm I'm referring to the, the eight men who own half the world's Uh, wealth, um, the billionaires who've seen their fortunes soar during this pandemic, the CEOs who make 350 times the salary of the average worker, and yet that critique of financial elitism, I think, has been diverted onto the second meaning of the word elites, which which means, you know, which is excellence and difficulty, big ideas, um, beautiful art, high culture, and so on. So although we have these multi-millionaire Old Etonians running the country and a property tycoon running the state, those real elites are trying to persuade us that they are not the elite. So they pose in hard hats and high-vis jackets and pretend to be the allies of ordinary working-class citizens. All topsy-turvy work, the power of those financial elites is hidden behind this complete red herring of this anti-elitism in culture and, and the media. So I really want to make the case for excellence and ambition in, in culture and, and big ideas. And we've seen how much people need that in, in these these COVID times, this real rediscovery of, of poetry, music, watching online theatre performances, but also journalistic scrutiny and scientific expertise, you know, and also political leadership in times of crisis. And I want to really distinguish between these very different forms of elitism, which have become so entangled, so that we can really point the finger at the damaging elitism, but also protect and defend the elitism, which I think is really important to us.
0: Yeah. So how did the right, which is traditionally supposed to like uh, elitism, you know, hierarchies uh, and all the rest of it, how did it come to vilify the institutions that they would once have defended? You know, universities, the BBC, uh, you know, we've seen tax on expertise during the Brexit debate. uh, What's the genealogy of that?
1: Yes, it's interesting that the, the right have traditionally been the defenders of democratic institutions, parliament, and so on, but also, as you say, of high culture. You know, I think of the late Roger Scruton as being um, the classic conservative defender of, of, of high art. But I think what's happened is that, that the what used to be called conservatives have now actually become radical modernisers. And that we've seen a shift from a more educated and culturally elite establishment, um, which, you know, had its imperfections and uh, so I'm not sort of necessarily harking back to a nostalgic past. But we've seen a shift from that kind of traditional establishment to a mercantile and then a financial establishment, which is centred around the city and Wall Street. And so... We've also seen a shift in values uh, uh, on the part of the sort of real powerful elites away from um, upholding cultural and and educational high standards and towards actually undermining them. And I think that's part of that undermining is 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 the sense that universities, cultural institutions, um, and media organisations are are critical of the establishment as it is now. They're critical of high finance and monopolies, corporate monopolies and so on. So I think you, you're having what you're seeing is an entrenchment on both sides, that as the establishment becomes uh, more entangled with financial monopolies, then media organisations, say um, journalists, become you know, more wedded to their, um, their laudable project of holding power to account. But those positions become more opposed at, at the same time, so and I think also what we 've seen is a shift from from thinking about inequality and, and economic inequality being the real fault line, you know both in term, you know, in terms of democracy, really that democracy used to be about a, an opposition between right and left, which used to represent opposed economic interests, the one percent versus the ninety nine percent say and there 's been a shift now to through the, through the culture wars to an emphasis on culture and education and, and, va- and cultural capital being the fault line. So what's important now is not whether you're rich or poor or, um, or vote to the left or to the right, but whether you live in a city, what's your level of education? Um, do you support gay marriage? Um, do you go to the opera? And what I'm arguing is that really that, that shift towards um, culture rather than a, a more productive democratic um, opposition between economic um, interests is very damaging and and divisive for our culture because it's no longer a healthy democratic debate between say the deserving rich and the um, you know aspirational poor or whatever but it's between um, identities that are much more harder to shift. So cosmopolitan the the anywheres versus the the somewheres in in, to to take David Goodhart's um, division.
0: Yes, it's interesting, isn't it? The, 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 the tactic of looking at institutions and digging out their ideological biases and um, seeing them not as sort of neutral arbiters, but just institutions where power is, is exerted. I mean, that's a classic left wing analysis, really, um, that was developed in, in critical theory. And and but now you will see it on the pages of the um, Spectator and spiked and, uh, and you know even government advisors.
1: Yes, and I think that there was, you know, there has been a, you know, in a way this is about the rise of populism, both on left and right, and, and there has been a a left critique of, a left populist critique of political institutions as as being corrupted by unaccountable interests, by financial lobbies and so on. And that critique of institutions on the left, you know, is, is I think legitimate that, that that a lot of democratic institutions have been corrupted by by those kinds of invisible interests, but I think the problem comes is when well two things one is when a critique, when those institutions which I think are valuable because they're democratic institutions that protect our interests and represent our rights, you know the rule of law and and so on when, when those um, political and, and legal institutions are un- undermined. Um, by the right, um, because of a shift towards uh, unaccountable power and less um, democratic representation and accountability, on the one hand, but you but then you're having this attack from the left at the same time, um, you know, undermining attacking those institutions for being uh, for being too unaccountable and also not being diverse enough as well. I guess we'll go on to talk about identity politics later on, but. So I think we're seeing that those institutions being really undermined by a, a pincer movement coming from both the, the right who wants to undermine institutions um, and, and the left who want to also bring them down, um, but for, for different reasons.
0: So we do definitely live in a sort of, whether we like it or not, a culture war sort of society now. Um, and the critique is that the, the big institutions um, that we've, we've we've talked about have been taken over by, sometimes it's called the left, but really, I think in some ways, it's it, it's sort of liberalism. Um, and uh, an emphasis on, as we were saying, identity, and diversity, and you also talk about cultural democratisation and um, the idea that uh, certain institutions can't just be focused on a small, as it were, elite group of people. They need to be for everyone. Um, Is there any truth that our institutions are actually going in that direction? And if so, is is that a problem?
1: Yes, it's very interesting. I think think part of the problem is around this word liberal and liberal elite. So I do think that there has been a a deliberate attempt by alt-right commentators like Steve Bannon to portray the kind of technocratic um, global capitalist establishment as left-wing. So, I think Steve Bannon has referred to Davos as being, you know, stuffed with sort of liberal left-wing thinkers, which, you know, I think is kind of surprising. Um, and so, and I, and I think this this phrase "liberal elite" creates the impression that the the powerful establishment does lean to the left and is progressive. And I think that's just not not the case. And I do think that that, that um, anti-elitism is a response to to uh, you know. Uh, to unaccountable technocrats Um, and I think there some legitimate challenge there but I think but I do think that there's also a, a really mistaken emphasis on the idea that our governing elites are too progressive I think that's mistaken but I think I think there is some grain of truth to the to the fact that you know media education and culture those sectors are do often lean lean leftwards but I think that what happens then you know to take the example of the BBC for example is that the BBC keeps employing more and more right, right-wing journalists to, to stem this criticism of liberal bias. But actually that criticism just keeps on coming so that what you have is a kind of a self-destructive spiral where um, media and, and, and cultural institutions uh, sort of undermine themselves in an attempt to not appear to be stuffed with liberals. Um, but actually that... Uh, limits their ability to to hold our leaders to account and also to be excellent in themselves. So to take the example of culture, I, I talk a lot about cultural institutions in the books. So I feel that in a sense, you know, it's not their fault in a way, they're under the cosh of government demands to demonstrate public value and to, to engage um, diverse audiences and, and so on, which I, which I understand and is you know often a laudable aim in itself but i think that many cultural and educational institutions are not really convinced of their own right to 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 produce excellent culture and high educational standards or even their right to exist as kind of just producing beautiful artworks and and, produ- and and producing difficult and uh, ideas and, and um, scholarship in itself as, as values in their own terms so that cultural organizations spend huge amounts of time Demonstrating outreach, interactivity, and, and impact, and I do think that that is part of this loss of confidence that um, in in just producing what they believe to be excellent art and 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 great culture. So, and so I think that um, we get this sort of symbolic um, this shift to a symbolic realm where we where through terms like democratization. We outsource to these symbolic, cultural, and educational realms the, the the project of actually ensuring social and economic equality. So, what used to be a political project of aiming for genuine um, economic equality has now really become a largely symbolic exercise of demonstrating that that culture and, and education are being democratised. Um, and yet, you know, this is often an, an empty gesture, which, which actually dilutes culture and lowers educational standards, while at the same time concealing where the real power and inequality lies.
0: Yes, so the, at the same time as um, the right will accuse um, the BBC or the universities of being uh, irredeemably liberal, then at the same time, some on the left will accuse them of being institutionally racist and um, exclusionary. Um, and you're in this weird situation where uh, they're, they're accused of being both, you know, incredibly woke and in inverted commas and you know or, or just sort of dinosaurs who haven't caught up with the with the modern age. And um, there's this sort of battle battle over what they mean. That uh, you know they can't be both at the same time, can they? Um, they've got to be one or the other.
1: That's right. And I think that that really institutions like the BBC, the British Museum. You know, institutions which are really under genuine threat you know post covid but also through decades of underfunding and 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 so on um that these really embattled um vulnerable institutions are being attacked from both sides so they're being and I think that this is playing out um on this territory of um diversity and and what 's often called wokeness so that while in the background we have this obscene profiteering you know, galloping inequality and so on which is sort of out of view um all the real attention um, and often media attention is focused on this very these very symbolic battles about diversity and representation which are a, a real distraction from where the real power and in inequality lies again so so for example so the right and, and I think you know and I think when the right criticizes the BBC and the British Museum for being too woke, that is an anti-elitist attack on the BBC or, or, or on these institutions in general, because it's saying, you know, you are elite, you are you are being too tolerant and multicultural, cosmopolitan and so on. Um but the left is also laying into these institutions saying you are too elite because you're not uh, representing uh, minorities and you're you're refle- you're continuing the the imperial past and 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 so on so so i think the, the you have this anti-elite attack from both right and left directed at these very valuable and um, and vulnerable cultural um and heritage and media organisations Uh, when actually what we should be doing is saying, well, what is it about these institutions that we really value? You know, um, the the BBC, um, the British Museum, galleries, um, the National Trust, all these institutions and organisations which are really, you know, their future is really gravely um, threatened. And instead of bashing them with this this sort of mistaken anti elitism, we should really be seeking to, to defend um what we really value and of course you know there are there are issues about representation and diversity um that must be addressed but it, but but without losing institutional confidence in in these in these in in these bodies that really enrich us and and really lift us out of, of our everyday lives and stretch us and provide so much benefit to us
0: yes it's interesting that because you you you, you... The idea of um high culture, which is even a term now which you know one uses with trepidation that it, it was historically speaking the left um and thinkers on the left who fought for the idea that high culture should be accessible to everyone everyone should be able to look at it um uh the, the Labour opened museums up for free and that was a part of their policy of um, getting people access to these um, institutions but that idea seems to have fallen away somewhat and is that because we've just changed as a society demographically and it means that people you know want to see their histories reflected in their museums which which might seem to be a, a completely reasonable request?
1: Yeah I mean I think it is really important for museums to to be truly representative to challenge their imperial legacy you know we must always be looking at the canon um of works of great literature asking if it's truly representative of the best writing that's that's actually out there and perhaps been um forgotten so we should always be vigilant um about about um revitalizing you know what we take to be good beautiful and true but But I think that we too often forget this great tradition of working class culture. And in the book, you know, I I go into this in in some detail. The the great traditions of working men's institutes, literary and scientific um, institutes up and down the country, minors, reading rooms, um, incredible levels of, of intellectual Activity um, amongst these working class communities that Jonathan Rose um, detailed in his brilliant book, The Intellectual Life of the British Working Classes. But also there's this great tradition, I think, again, that's been forgotten about, which is um, which is real avant-garde um, British television that was produced by working class um, producers and directors and writers like Dennis Potter. Um, Ken Loach. So we had that great tradition of play for today, Wednesday play, um, and also fantastic series on ITV, and so on. So, so I think we 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 now forget that um, that that uh, that great culture does not automatically mean that it's bound up with social privilege. I think what's happened um, in the last few decades is that because of the closing down of routes of entry to both culture and politics. Actually, you know, um, uh, in the in the seventies, the proportion of MPs who were drawn from manual work backgrounds was actually higher than it is today. So, we've actually seen a narrowing of of these um, routes of entry by non non traditional, you know, um, entrance into cultural professions. So, and as as with politics, so. So, because we've we we now have this de facto circumstantial uh, entanglement of 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 high culture and social privilege, we somehow assume that great art, great culture, big ideas automatically goes hand in hand with being posh or rich. But but if we look at the historical record, that just doesn't isn't isn't the case. And I think it's even though you know many TV executives now might might say well high culture is over what we need to, to do is focus on what is popular and what um what attracts the biggest audiences i think the problem with that is that it patronizes audiences actually uh, by assuming that um the ordinary reader or viewer simply wants something which is commercial um, and i think that we need to get back to an idea where we trust um, writers and tv producers and directors to produce what they think is good and excellent, and then the audiences will follow.
0: Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? Going on to the politics, we're coming up to a US um, election and you, you quote Hannah Arendt's words about fascism and she, she, she wrote that it was the temporary alliance of the mob and the elite and the elite in the sense there of being um, you know, the kind of elites that are, are running America now. But conversely, people with great wealth and power love to represent themselves as powerless or at least speaking for the powerless. It's It's a weird conundrum, isn't it?
1: It is. And I think that the real problem, you know, I'm, I've always been interested in not just critiquing where power lies, but but actually critiquing the public license that legitimates power. And I think what's happened with anti-elitism is that that really has become a powerful uh, legitimation of, of wealth and, you know, monopolization of, of resources and profiteering and, and, and financialisation and all these things which are hollowing out our world, that actually um, the public licence for, uh, for financial elites becoming ever more wealthy and powerful is this idea that somehow ordinary people are finally having their say. And I think, you know, if you look back at the tradition of anti-elite um, discourse and anti-elite rhetoric, um, which stretches back um, through Nazi Germany um, in the kind of the stereotypes of Jews as cosmopolitan elites and, and um, intellectuals. Um, and also, if you look back to the, the a tradition in, in the States, McCarthyism and, um, and a very strong tradition within American political culture of dismissing intellectuals, eggheads. If you see this tradition of anti-elitism which stretches back through political cultures, um, and is of course a feature of right wing populism around the, the world. Then you see, then you see it less as this kind of novel victory for the for the ordinary uh, working class voter to finally have their say, and more about um, a a much more um, uh, sort of uniform playbook which which is being um, which is being used to to legitimate this concentration of power. So, and I think this again this comes back to the culture culture wars that that if 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 what matters is your level of education and whether you live in a city or the country or or a small town um, and whether you like ballet, um, then uh, then Trump can credibly side with uh, blue-collar Americans. And same here with um, Boris Johnson and, and Jacob Rees-Mogg somehow claiming to represent ordinary working-class voters. That if if you take money and economic inequality um out of the equation then then you you can have this this alliance um between people who whose whose real economic interests are, are not in in any in any real way aligned but i think I, I mean i really think that in this country that alliance is is strained um uh, to to a ludicrous extent really that that the idea that um that the people running our country you know, they're not just rich they they're also part of a journalistic and cultural elite you know so so johnson and um and co with their links to the spectator the telegraph and the times it's it's very interesting in a way that they that they are they somehow manage to pull pull off this illusion that they are friends of the working class um and i think it's very interesting i think i think when boris johnson poses you know in a in a, a hairnet um in a, a fish factory um there 's something perhaps about that humbling spectacle which somehow allows him to get away with being an old Etonian who quotes latin so I do think that 's very interesting but i think I think what happens is in terms of politics is that those who pose as outsiders against the Westminster um bubble or the the washington swamp you know in in the states I think what the the problem is is that once you um pose as an opponent of the so called corrupt political elite, then what you what happens is you then um gain power and become part of the political elite yourselves but but because you 're still opposing um what is ref- what you refer to as the political elite, you then destroy uh, democratic institutions from the inside, and that that acquires public license um, and legit- legitimation through the idea that political elites are also, um, uh, privileged. Um, and I think that, you know, it's a paradox of democracy that aspects of, of democratic institutions do appear to be lofty and unaccountable, you know, deliberation behind closed doors, um, you know, expert advisors, um, committee room discussions, um, yeah, taking time to to discuss things, not not actually um, having de- direct democracy. The the these this is the paradox of democracy that those checks and balances that that do appear elite are actually the institutions that uh, protect our our true interests. So I I'm arguing that we destroy those at our peril.
0: So what would be the argument, a progressive argument for a a, a new elitism? Um, you know, doesn't elitism in all its forms in some ways create sort of people in charge and people not in charge and encourage societal division? Um, it requires discrimination, um, uh, whether intellectual, uh, but but also just in, in ability terms. And in our society, which is very focused on um, equality and democracy, that can be difficult for people to accept, um, can't it?
1: Yeah, I mean the the word elite originally came from the Latin eligere to to elect. So originally, you know, the the kernel of the word elitism is is simply those who are elected. And I do think, you know, that due to the iron law of oligarchy, you do in practical terms often have a drift towards the concentration of power um and a drift towards those in power not being truly representative but i think that the answer is not to as the anti-elite anti-political elites would have it to just to junk the system and um, institute a sort of a populist fascism which is really i think where where we're going now but but to to try your best to resist the iron law of oligarchy and um and and try and you know constantly refresh democracy so that it 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 um fulfills um you know its original function as being ruled by the people as well as for the on behalf of the people so yes yeah, so, and i and I think you know citizens' assemblies, you know which is something i 've written about for prospect are an interesting way to to try and do that but ironically, when I looked at citizens' assemblies, they often end up really uh being an argument for expertise um and informed discussion because citizens' assemblies hear from experts and are informed by experts and actually the participants become very they almost become experts in themselves at, at the 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 um, political problem they're trying to solve so so what I'm yeah so I guess what I'm saying is people aren't stupid and political representatives need to be as representative of the population um that they're serving as much as possible drawn from a a as as broad as possible demographic pool and you know range of 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 professions and uh, businesses and, and and backgrounds. So I think yeah we must we must resist ol- that oligarchic drift as much as possible. But I think it's so important to not junk democratic institutions um altogether and in fact to, de- to defend them in in these dangerous times when when the people um are being used as a as a pretext to to sweep away the institutions that actually protect our interests. Um in terms of culture I mean, I think, again, we, we've just come to, 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 to implicitly accept um, that uh, high standards and, and privilege are entangled, and, and I think that's just not the case. But I think, and I think that the problem is that we've had a, a dilution of quality you know, by, by knocking those so-called gatekeepers off their pedestals and by questioning the role of the professional critic. I think we've, we think that we are somehow leveling down that we're producing a level playing field but actually i think this is a con um which has been pro- propagated by uh silicon valley you know which is you know because te- new technology digital technology is a big part of this that 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 really it's an illusion that we create a level playing field in in culture um, and that and that actually conceals as i've been saying um where the real economic um power lies. So, I think that we need to really separate out excellence from privilege, and and to think carefully about what forms of, you know, discernment, judgment, curation um, would be appropriate for this post deferential age, and and I think that we need to we could do well to remember the very rich tradition in the eighteenth century of debating what is. True and what is beautiful, and to 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 reinvigorate that spirit of democratic um, debate about quality, so that this is not just you know privileged connoisseurship, but actually it's working out um, how we can uh, create a vision of art and culture that's that's as ambitious as possible, and then make it available to as wide an audience as possible.
0: Ellie Glazer, thank you so much for joining us.
1: Thank you, Samir.
0: That's all from us. Thanks for joining us this week on the Prospect Interview. If you enjoyed our podcast, please do leave us a rating and a review. It really does help get the word out. Goodbye, stay safe and see you next week.